closing. Hello everyone, this is Tsi Yang. Welcome to another episode of the Looking Differently podcast, where we have insightful and open conversations on diversity and difference in Singapore. We're on a short break, but we're back now with a very interesting conversation for our listeners. When we think about kue lapis, ayam buah keluar, or the sarong kebaya, these are just some things many of us would know about the culture of the Peranakans of Singapore. The culture is widely celebrated, admired, and even endorsed by the state as a beautiful rojak of cultures of the different ethnicities in Singapore. However, there's a less talked about side of the community, the conversion of most Peranakans to the Catholic faith. In this episode, we are joined by artist Ji Chan, who is of Peranakan and Catholic background, and Jen Chia, a member of the Looking Differently team, who shares a common family background as Ji. Both of them discuss their family's conversion to the Catholic faith, the reasons to do so, and then Ji spotlights his own family's negotiation with the tug of Pranakan Chinese traditions of ancestral and deity worship and their Catholic faith. This is an often overlooked side of the Pranakan community, the dynamics and tensions between tradition, family, and faith. For a culture that has been recognized as a national heritage, and is increasingly commercialized. This episode will show how Pranakan culture is not static, but has always been evolving and hybridizing in the present. Enjoy this episode thoroughly, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ji and Jen. Uh, hi everyone. We are back on the Looking Differently podcast. And uh, it's been a while, and today we have new guest on the podcast who is actually my good friend Ji Chan say hi <laughs> hello <Samoa. laughs> nice and, to be here thank you for the generous invitation and actually we also have another teammate on the from the Looking Differently team Jen Chia and uh, she's actually been behind the scenes doing a lot of the marketing and promotional material so yeah, actually today we have a three-person uh, conversation regarding rather interesting topic on uh, the Catholic Pranakans of Singapore. My friend here, G, is from a family with this background and he's very happy to share about his experience growing up, having such an upbringing, his own experience, personal experience of this rather unique but actually very overlooked aspect of the Pranakan experience. So maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself first, like just a brief intro. Mm. So I think I was very yeah, much looking forward to this conversation today because I guess this aspect of my identity is something that I just live out and I've never really like, articulated or discussed in depth with people before. Like. So... A little bit about myself, I'm an artist and choreographer. I am currently in Singapore for a few months. Um, most of the time I'm currently based in Berlin, but I'm very happy to be back for this period of time to see family and, um, yeah, and also to do this wonderful podcast to see with friends. My dad's side uh, is Hokkien Pranakan. And my mom's side, actually Hakka and Cantonese. So growing up within this family, I would say my dad's side of the family featured more dominantly or visibly in my life because my dad's side is a larger family. You know, there's a lot of extended relatives. And for example, during Chinese New Year, most of the visiting will be at um, this side of the family's houses la, and my grandmother, so my dad's mom, would be the central node or like nexus where all the relatives will congregate during Chinese New Year and, and um, visit. La. So I guess in terms of Pranakan identity, um, I always grew up, uh, okay, if I speak about my dad's side, because my mom's side is a, quite a different story, la. Well, in my own house, I grew up with my parents, my brother, and my grandmother on my mom's side, who is Cantonese. So I grew up speaking Cantonese with my papa, as I call her, my maternal grandmother. Um, but on my dad's side, when we would visit my 
grandparents on that side, his parents, they live in a different house. We would, you know, mostly speak English or Baba Melayu, so the Patuala. And my grandmother, my dad, they also speak Hokkien. So I guess some context, maybe if we focus a little bit more deeply on this aspect of religion in my dad's side of the family, my dad grew up as uh, you know, an ancestral worshipper, like in the Chinese folk religion, more geared towards Taoism. Catholicism was not in the picture like, at the point when my dad was a young child. So my dad grew up in Gelang, in one of these kampongs. And that was the ancestral home like, of the Chan family. And in that household, you know, they all spoke Baba Malay, Hokkien, English sometimes. And they would go to this temple. And my dad sometimes jokes that he was the champion chanter of that temple, <laughs> uh, even as a young child of the age of uh, eight or nine. And he was able to recite, you know, all these mantras or sutras, right? That was the religious environment that he grew up in and his family grew up in, or uh, yeah, his family lived within. But then later on in his life, he, you know, he went, he was at a schooling age, he was... He attended primary school at St. Stephen's School, Mission Catholic School. And then in his secondary school, he went to St. Pat's at Katong. So his whole like 12 years you know, of education, last time you know, St. Pat's was also pre-U, so six years at St. Pat's, was all within the mission school. And it was English medium education. The conversion, I think, happened through my dad, he was that person or like that conduit which facilitated his family's shift into Catholicism. So he, I guess, met like you know good people, nice people in the school environment, and maybe he connected also to something about this religion or these uh, this faith. So uh, when he was in his late teens, I believe. He approached his parents and he asked them, you know, would you be comfortable if I converted into Catholicism? Or like, you know, he threw this idea out. And I guess the story that I was told later on in my life, which was maybe even only a few years ago, was that my grandmother, so his mom, was very welcoming of that idea. Because she, as the, as the woman of this Pranakan household, you know, she was very much in charge of the kitchen and she always had to masak lauk for samayang. So for many festivities or like religious functions, ancestral worship, there must be lauk samayang, which is like these food offerings for the deities or for the ancestors. So she was in charge of the kitchen, having to make like A to Z la, of this Pranakan food. Like ite tim, ayam wakalwa, pongte, all of these things, acha, samamlachan, from scratch. And when I think about it now, like in that time, it's insane. La. Like how would that be manageable? And that's not like a you know once a year, twice a year affair. It's like every other month, you know, there's... Wan Yinna's birthday or like Tua Pekong and then her or like her in-laws ancestors so many many different celebrations throughout the year so she was very excited she was like oh okay what do I have to do in this new religion uh, oh go to church only once a week is it sure sign me up so that I think was a clear assent or consent on her part which shifted the family towards Catholicism. And then my grandfather, uh, he also converted uh, along the line, somewhere down the line. So that's how it was. And then by the time my parents met, and then by the time my brother and I were born, I have one older brother, uh, we were born as Catholics. Uh, 
So actually, I'm this so-called like first generation Catholic, mm. <laughs> you know, which is something that I just you know grew up with as a child. I didn't have any like second thought about it. I just thought, okay, that's the way things are. You know, just go to mass every Sunday, uh, go through catechism, which is sure Jen, you also went to create <laughs> ten years of this kind of religious study. Uh, yeah, I went to this church in Katong, Holy Family Church, which is famous for being the enclave of the Pranakan Catholics <laughs> of Singapore. It wasn't later in my late teens as well when I started to reflect a bit more deeply on my relationship to this religion. And I became more conscious, like, okay, what is this actually? And yeah, how do I relate to it as a person? I mean, there were various reasons, maybe we can share more later, but uh, ultimately I moved away from the church and I that probably also gave me more space to think outside of that religious framework and to also perceive or to think through a little bit more deeply how I arrived personally at this religion, which is, you know, what I just shared through my dad and then how he arrived at this religion and like what there was before that. So this is kind of a very complex area in my life. And yeah, it's always something that excites me when I talk about it because my dad also has a very interesting relationship to the Catholic religion, uh, which perhaps we'll go into more detail later. Mm, very interesting. So, like Jen, do you have like a similar experience as your? I mean, because to just give a bit of background, yeah. I mean, she can share herself later. But Jen also comes from a Pranakan background. <laughs> so, Same. actually, that's the reason why I asked her to join today because <laughs> I wanted her to also share her experience, which might be very different from G's. So I think very similar. My dad doesn't like the Pranakan part doesn't come from my dad's side so it was my mom's family who's Pranakan and a bit different from G because um, they were already Catholic like practicing Catholics like they weren't newly converted in the recent years but well, when should I start? okay I'll start from like they also grew up along Katong and also went to Holy Family Church and actually um, going to church featured in a lot of the stories that my aunties used to tell me like they'll tell me oh after church they will walk home and then they will buy ice cream on the way mm. yeah so it was like a weekly outing for them also so your your mom grew up as a Catholic yeah my mom grew up as a Catholic and then it's your grandparents who maternal grandparents who converted? So I'm not sure when the conversion first happened. I know my grandfather's family was already Catholic. Mm. And then I just found out that my grandmother's family... So my grandma came from KL initially, and then my grandfather was initially from Sumatra side. And then I forgot how they met. But... (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, I found out that my grandmother was actually Anglican before she married my grandfather. And then after marriage, then she started practicing um, the Catholic faith. Mm. And then all my aunties and uncles, also big family, they were all, they, they were all like raised Catholic. And then similar, so all the boys would go to St. Stephen's and then St. Pat's. And it's like, I think some went to SJI. Mm. And then the girls would just go to Katong Convent, primary mm. and secondary. Mm. Like, gee, just now you mentioned like your grandparents sent your dad to St. Stephen's and then mm. eventually went to St. Pat's, right? Yeah. And these, um, these being Catholic mission schools that are in the English medium, mm. is there a specific, specific reason they did that? So my grandfather went to BS, which is Victoria School, by the way. And because my grandfather, he grew up speaking Malay. And, and then, you know, after schooling, then I guess his, he also became stronger in the English language. Mm. And of course, you know, that's a product of colonization, etc. But I think when they had 
my dad and uh, he has a younger sister and it made sense for them to send their children to an English medium school because I think they were afraid that the, because back then you know schools were quite divided along the lines of language right so I think maybe my grandparents were afraid to send my my dad to like a Chinese medium school for fear that he could not pick up uh, or like you know do well in that language environment mm. so nonetheless my dad he did study Mandarin in St. Pat's yeah and because this was when the there's already the policy of like Singapore's language policy that's very closely, I would guess, very closely related to its racial categorization policy, which mm. I think according to my mom, I think this is what my mom told me, is that anyone with a Chinese surname has to take Mandarin mm. as their second language. Mm. Yeah, on top of English. So probably Baranakan Chinese are probably more fluent in Malay as in their mother tongue, right? But yeah they were categorized into the Chinese yeah. race group, right? Exactly. Yeah. My mom and her family, maybe slightly older generation, they didn't they didn't study Chinese at all. Mm. Yeah. So they learned Malay in school as mm. their second language. And yeah, they don't know any Chinese but they cannot talk they cannot speak Chinese they at took, all. They took Malay. They took Malay. Mm. And about like them going to an English medium school, I think at that time a lot of the Pranakans were in like civil what do you call it? Civil, civil servants, yeah. yeah. Clerks, admin administration administrators. Mm. So like G said, because the schools were divided along the lines of language, right? So they wouldn't have identified with the Chinese speaking schools. Yeah, and I think culturally also, their practices were quite different from a lot of the Chinese at that time. So, they just identified, I don't know if identify is the right word, lah, but it, they, they just went to mission schools. Mm. Yeah. I think G's like, grandfather also was a civil servant, right? He was working in the police force. Mm. Yeah, my dad's dad. He was working in like the some guard. He was a guard in the mm. guard division. Yeah. Do you know anything about your let's say your great grandfather? Mm. So on my dad's side, right? Yeah. Well, uh I know his name, I know where he is buried. Um I just visited his tomb at Bukit Brown uh, last week because of the Qingbing Festival. Um, but I don't know very much about him because uh, he had already passed away by the time my father was born. So my dad didn't even meet him in person because I think he he passed away, you know, fairly young for like uh, very contemporary standards. Mm-hmm. Like in his late sixties. What was his occupation? That. It's a good question. Mm. Yeah, I have to ask my father if he knows. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's just something to, yeah, we have to, not say we have to think about, but I guess a point of curiosity, which is that why so many of these, uh, of the Pranakans were like civil servants. Mm. And, and that, I mean, even like from like my relatives or like my mom, sometimes out of the blue, you know, they will say stuff like, oh, Oh, their pranaka must be their English must be very good. Mm. You know, it's a it's like a you know, yeah. pranaka equates to good at the English language, la. Yeah. I guess it's like what made this group of people more inclined towards picking up English, right? Mm. Yeah. The the mm. incentives, la. Yeah. Well, the incentives for the community to. I guess very pra- practical things, lah, right? To muscle the to enter like the more English speaking uh, realm of the world, lah. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So just now, uh, G, you mentioned uh, you went to Qingbing mm. recently, and yet your family is Catholic. Maybe you can yes. share a bit about that. 
<laughs> yes, this is a very unique aspect of my father's life. So as I mentioned earlier, he converted right, to Catholicism and that's how I grew up in the Catholic tradition. But nevertheless, ever since I could remember, he was practicing ancestral worship and chimbing. Uh, and as a young child, I would accompany him you know, to like the columbarium. And then later on in the years, it was Bukit Brown, la, because Bukit Brown is really like a forest or a jungle. And it takes some skill la, to find the tomb and like, to get there. And this time around, like, he's getting a little bit older. So my um, brother, myself, and our cousin, we accompanied him. La, and we had to like uh, pin him like to walk through the, the undergrowth, you know of that younger. So, yeah, my father, I think he, how, okay, let me just try to frame my thoughts. When he converted, or his family converted to Catholicism, you know, the idea was, oh, yay, we don't need to semayang <laughs> anymore, right? And with all this laborious uh, process of masa, lao, everything. That's why eventually my grandparents, they were the ones who said, okay, jangan semayan lagi, you know. So no need to practice ancestral worship anymore. And then, because they, they would, la, of course, you know, before they converted, of course, every, every uh, chingbing, they will semayan. Maybe that marked like this uh, liberation from this labor, you know, for them. But... Then later on, when my dad grew into his adulthood, he picked up this practice again of Smayang Abu, ancestral worship. And actually my grandparents got annoyed at him. They were like, So that's shut up, Smayang, right? I already told you, like, stop it, you know. We have already left that, like, stop doing that. But he was the gala in a sense, like he just was like, oh yeah, I want to do it. And like, yeah, maybe he found it uh, important, you know, and also perhaps interesting. Important in the sense that the whole concept of ancestral worship is based upon the idea that your descendants must continue to feed you even in the afterlife and continue to sustain your, your life after death. You know, so to burn money for you to use, to give you food, to give you now what, what you have these days, like even COVID vaccine you can burn, right? Or uh, cars, right? That kind of thing. But I don't think we, my family burned all of these uh, figurines. Like it was mostly the uh, money and the food. So I think my dad continues to hold on to this belief and... It's interesting now that as he gets older, this year is 65 years old, and as my brother and I, you know, we get older as well, I also engage him sometimes in conversations, especially during such periods of like Samayang. I ask him, oh, you know, how uh, would you like to be remembered after you die? You know, and then he said, Oh, no need to smile me anymore. It's <laughs> a very weird kind of like seesaw <laughs> thing, you know? And in my in my I just told him that like, you're just saying that now. Of course you want to be <laughs> some, uh, for us to smile you, right? And um, he yeah like, like so irritating. The other day uh, we went to the market and then he bought chin chow. Like, he likes to eat chin chow. And then he told me, oh next time uh, uh, you can no need to masa uh, for me just smayang chin chow I thought you could last week just say you want me to smayang you now you want me to smayang you chin chow so there's all these very funny things that go on I think in his mind <laughs> and that's how it is la. you know this very fluid like syncretic jampo uh, kind of belief system that in a way doesn't interfere or it's not mutually exclusive from practicing the Catholic faith. Because for him, he goes to church every week, 
he he's a, he's a pastor, right? He's not a pastor, like he's a what you call a Eucharistic minister. So you know they have the body of Christ. Uh, and, uh, the bread, the bread, and parishioners would eat the bread. So he uh, gives out, like distributes this bread <laughs> to the parishioners during mass. Mm. So that's considered quite a sacred yeah. uh, duty, right? So he holds these positions in the Catholic Church. And and he Samaya Ching Chow. So <laughs> these two worlds collide, I think, very interestingly in this one event that happens every year, which is the Pranakan Mass. And this is a tradition that was started uh, 40 years ago now by this Pranakan priest called uh, his name is Father Alfred Chan. He passed away in 2013, if I'm not wrong. And I knew him like as a family friend, as a grand uncle. And he had this idea to start the Pranakan Mass in the Holy Family Church to, uh, to cater to the large Pranakan congregation. And this Mass would be conducted once a year during Chinese New Year. So my dad assisted Father Chan in uh, preparing the Pranakan Mass. And in the you know in church you have the altar right what we call the tabernacle which is this uh, um, area of the church which is the most sacred where the body of Jesus Christ is believed to be to be residing within that so there is that altar but during the Pranakan mass there is another altar that is set up uh, adjacent to this main altar. And this altar, uh, you've seen photos of it, like it re- resembles this ancestral altar that one would see in a typical mm. kind of traditional home, ancestral, in the ancestral hall. So it consists of um, a, you know, a, a table and then there is something called a jana, which is a it's an important uh, receptacle or like a holder of incense during ancestral worship. And then there are two big red candles, you know, very in the Chinese tradition. And then my dad would even bring like uh, fruits, which he would buy from the market, and then he would put out on the Pranakan porcelain, like bananas, apples, oranges. Uh, and it's incredible, lah. I mean, because this is an ancestral worship practice that is, in the, in a very crude way of putting it, it's pagan. It's a pagan practice, and if you talk to maybe some Catholics even who are maybe more, let's say pure Orthodox, yeah, in their uh, belief, then they would be quite uh, affronted, lah. Maybe by such a uh, display, right? I think we don't even need to discuss the Protestant side of the Christian faith where they are even more, I think, to put it generally, like, even more orthodox. Mm. So that's kind of where my father's uh, religious practices lie. Like. Mm. Do you do you have any similar experiences or? Um no, so my experience is completely different. I think it could be because we were like Catholics for very long, so I think all these mm. traditions were lost by the time it reached my parents or even my grandparents' generation. Mm. So they didn't grow up doing Samayang at all. Mm. The only time, like we, we never really celebrate Qingming. The only time we do, we go to the graves is during anniversaries. Mm. Or now that all the graves have been exhumed is to go to um, the columbarium, which is located within the churches. And... Yeah, and then it's just like do press and then that's it. Mm. So makan and all that is done only during like celebrations like Chinese New Year and then only then then we will have like all the big cooking. Mm. Yeah, so I think it's interesting because I wonder if it's because 
of the time that the conversion happened. Mm. Yeah, and then yeah, but it's quite sad lah. That it's all lost. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like there's this popular kind of notion la, or like a just something is like a com- almost common sense but somehow no one speaks about it I guess that's the point of this podcast right we are trying to highlight something that's quite so banal but some, but it's actually quite interesting which is that how come so many Chinese Peranakans are Catholic mm. like you know, is, do you all have any theories or you know mm. Theories. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just now before the podcast, oh, yeah. you mentioned. So my mom has this theory that because again, just now they were sending all their children to English medium schools. Yeah. Like part of that was also them adopting the colonizers' culture. Yeah. Yeah. So part of it was starting to have English names, mm. and then following the religion. Mm. Yeah. So I think my my grandmother's surname, so her father's surname was Hugh, H-U-G-H. So my grandmother's name was Maggie Hugh. And then they were obviously not like, yeah, white lah. So it was adopted from maybe his boss or yeah, someone who they worked for. So that kind of like, they really like immersed or adopted the culture at that mm. time of like the colonizers mm. keep calling them colonizers <laughs> mm, which is I mean yeah. <laughs> I guess in, in terms yeah. of like yeah I guess people being very pragmatic like, you know yeah. like you know if you want to climb up the yeah. society the climb the ladder then you can have to like you know they make the the most powerful people yeah. in that social that social structure, right? And mm. that being the British or mm. the Europeans of that time. Yeah. yeah. And then I guess depending on who they were influenced by, then they would either become Methodist, Anglican, Catholic. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think later on also the school system because most of these schools were brought were like run by missionaries, right? Exactly. So that further continued the influence. Uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think regarding this point about the schooling system at that time, I think that was really instrumental in um, facilitating this shift like, of the Pranakan Chinese in Singapore towards Catholicism. Because mm-hmm. I feel like um, you know, with the example of my dad, or also it sounds similar, like in your um, your mom's case, she also went to mission. Yeah, school, to get yeah, of course, uh, across the road. Katong Convent. The Convent of the Holy Infant Jesus. Yes. And uh, um, I don't know why I thought that. So, um, they were. Um, English medium schools, which perhaps most Pranakan, I, I mean, I, I don't, I won't want to speak for, you know, across the board for Pranakan families, but in my dad's case, uh, as I said, you know, perhaps there was this uncertainty of whether one's child would be able to fully uh, thrive and succeed in a Chinese medium school, you know. But some Pranakans did go to Malay medium schools. I, I think there were. like, um, but, the, but English medium schools were, I think, uh, the most viable yeah. option for many Pranakan families. And I think, sorry, um, I just want to add that I think this is also the case among the Indian Pranakans. Mm. I can't say across the board because I know a lot of them are not Catholic or Christian, but I also know that there is quite a significant community among them. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It, with education, you know, it comes... It, it comes with yeah. this. Uh, follow the yeah. Follow the religion. Yeah. And I guess by the generation of our parents, mm-hmm. you know, in the three sixties, or even our grandparents, 
there was already this big shift that was happening away from Chinese for religion or like other religions into the Catholic mm-hmm. religion. And that actually also another interesting thing that my dad told me recently was that when the older generation witnessed the, their children's generation converting, they also uh, got afraid because they felt, you know, in alignment with their Samayang uh, philosophy, that if their children are now Catholic, they will no longer Samayang me, and I will no longer be taken care of in the afterlife. So I better go and convert to this Catholic religion as well. So at least I don't need to be Samayang. What a concept, right? I don't need to be Samayang too. But in end, we will all be in the same heaven. Mm. We will all be in the Jesus heaven. In the department. Huh? There are different departments. <laughs> yeah. There's the There's Muslim the heaven. heaven. Yeah, it's like the <laughs> heaven. So, I think this mentality persists until today. Mm. You know? Actually, I remember quite a few years ago, you told me this story about you, you went to this antique shop to buy this gong. Yes. This yeah. mini in gong. Malacca, yeah. And then, no, I think in Singapore and Geylang. And then... Oh, oh, oh. Uh, Uncle Jeff's uh, shop. Yeah. And then you brought it home. Then your dad freaked out. Oh, no, no. The gong was from Malacca. But I think I went there to try to get the stick. La, the, uh, the stick to hit the gong, you know. Mm, I don't think I managed to get I can't recall maybe I got it I remember the story being your dad freaked out and then he started throwing holy water in it or something <laughs> in my church used to have a gong like holy tree when it was just open no, no, but they I... removed it later on oh what gong was it? It was a huge gong. Still, oh, okay. like, beat it at the start of mass. I don't think it's like a gong gong. No, I, no, it's, no. it's the small thing in Chinese yes. opera. Exactly. Yeah. This one in the church yeah. was the... Yeah, in the church, it was a big gong. Yeah. Oh, okay. The one that I... Father Ting. Father Ting. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this small gong... Uh, I got it in this antique shop in Malacca, actually. Mm. And then I, you know, asked the shop owner, like, oh, where is it from? Where did you get this? And then she told me it was actually from a temple down the road <laughs> here. And she said it was from the 70s or the 80s, like, and it was used in these ritual practices. Like. So I said, okay, interesting. And then I bought this gong, I brought it home. And then I told my father, and then he was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, he, I, I guess, did she freak out? I wouldn't know, I don't know if I would use that <laughs> phrasing. But he was definitely pantang in the sense that, oh, we was... must cleanse it mm. and we must uh, yeah, like, perform a ritual so that we can uh, yeah, chase this or like appease that spirit or like ask the spirit to leave, mm. any residual spirits yeah. to leave. So he did, yeah, I think... Uh, Dip it la, in a bucket of water and left it to dry overnight. Yeah. So he invents many of his own rituals. Yeah, because this is the thing that I find, uh, I mean, relating to just now, we were talking about the various departments in heaven, right? Yes. And uh, like, like the older folk uh, deciding to convert as well, since yes. the younger folk are converting, like, oh, Oh no! If I don't convert, then who will take care of me in the afterlife? Yes. I mean that 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 logic lah, that line of logic, uh, which, uh, you know, it's maybe if you bring it all to like to the source, let's say where the faith was came from, or mm-hmm. you know where it's, you know, if I can be recruit about it, it more pure lah, the more let's say in Europe. Mm. or wherever like in the Vatican church or something mm. you know all pra- this kind of logic or these practices maybe it won't make much sense to the people there like <laughs> oh there are various departments in heaven you know like yeah. you have to go to that one you know if I come with them we can all be in the same heaven yeah. you know if there's like this thing from the temple you need to cleanse it 
Yeah. You know, like I'm not. Sh- I I wonder like, I, I may be wrong. Mm. Um, but yeah, I do wonder. You know, yeah, like you said like, like your dad. Uh, being, I mean, we can talk more about your dad also. His, his others because I'm actually <laughs> for our audiences out there. Actually, uh, G's dad is a uh, quite a popular figure in Singapore. <laughs> like. What? Actually, yeah, he's quite active in the Pranakan Association. Yeah, so so he, if you ever see like <laughs> any, Maybe anything case. about Pranakan Pantun, which is like poems, yeah, yeah, his, his dad is probably involved. Yeah, like he's always reciting uh, Pantuns. Yeah, and uh, so I, I think that so I guess we we segue into more of like your dad's uh you know his his uh enthusiasm about Pranakan heritage yeah. and how this is a slightly bit different from tradition. Mm. Maybe I'll talk a mm. bit about that. Yeah. I mean I think this topic uh it was born out of this earlier conversation between Siyang and I where we were having day and then we were somehow Land, we somehow landed on this topic of like, okay, what do we think the distinctions are between tradition and heritage? You know, or are they the same thing? And I guess growing up in Singapore, um, like heritage has become instrumentalized, I would say, by in a very political way, where um, you know, if you walk to Kampung Lang, or if you walk to Katong, you walk to Little India, it's like, oh, these are heritage districts, right? Or this, we preserve this as heritage. And that becomes a very um, purposeful and deliberate way of saying, okay, this is culture, and this is state-sanctioned culture, you know? And uh, that's a very uh, distinct way, you know, of preserving a kind of uh, tradition. Whereas, um, and okay, if I were to focus on the Pranakan uh, culture and its relation to what I just mentioned about heritage here in Singapore, I'm sure all of us have also noticed in the last decade or so, uh, with the outbreak of uh, Little Nyonya, (laughs) perhaps this also facilitated a huge uh, Everyone claiming yes. their ancestry. Yeah, interest in Pranakan culture. Um, uh, Little Nyonya, or Chinese known as Xiaonyang, is a Mandarin Chinese series on the Chinese channel, Channel 8, that was quite popular in the early 2000s, which followed the story of uh, a young Nyonya woman and her the trials and tribulations of her life. Yeah, I guess that's when the Singapore government also caught on to this realisation that, oh yeah, Pranakan culture is something that can be really uh, highlighted and platformed as a uniquely Singaporean uh, culture, you know. Uh, Because, you know, Singapore, I guess, at least at the state level, on the official level, I guess there's always been this existential crisis of like, what is our culture? We don't have culture, we're like cut off from our motherland, where is our culture? And then finally it's like, oh Singapore, we have Pranakans, <laughs> and now let's like make whole of Terminal 4 at Changi Airport a Pranakan team. You know, and it's like, oh, what is going on? And that's a very unique way of, or distinct way of preserving a kind of culture. So I would Tart that as heritage, or at least how I've experienced heritage in a Singaporean context. Whereas tradition, I think it's quite distinct from this concept of heritage, where tradition just means something that is passed on down through generations over time. And that doesn't necessarily need to be you know state sanctioned or like highlighted, marketed. Uh, as something that is valuable to to uh, to the na- to the nation, you know, like um, or even for profit, uh. Oh, yeah, exactly. Or even for, for profit, it doesn't need to be capitalized upon. So even if it's something like oh my my grandmother's fishball noodle recipe, or like my uh, great grandfather's popiah, you know, it's that's a tradition which can be passed down through family lineage la. or like of doesn't it just need to be family but like you know can be passed on over time to people. 
So that some traditions sit outside, I guess, what would be considered like state sanctioned mm. heritage. Culture. That's my thing on it. Yeah. Mm. Actually, there really has been a rise of this Pranakan culture. I just remember that when I was younger and I told people I'm Pranakan, then no one knows the meaning. They, like, they would ask me, oh, why you cannot, why are your Chinese so lousy? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just be like, oh, my mother brought that gun. Then, <laughs> <That's> the, <laughs> the, like, then <laughs> the magic, the magic formula. Yeah. And no one would know what it meant, but now everyone knows it. Mm. And I think after Little Nyonya, um, everyone started wearing kabayas for racial harmony day. Yeah, so mm. like the culture. <laughs> <laughs> has definitely been popularized yeah. hmm. which has its pros and cons yeah. right because then you know there is more I guess public awareness of like oh yeah there is this kind of hybrid culture that exists or what is that let's look into it but then of course there is the side where as Ziyang mentioned it can really be capitalized mm-hmm. upon and like everything becomes centered around profit yeah. and then it becomes very uh, like uh, <gasps> then, like <laughs> very yeah like, as it happens to many many different cultures you know and things around the world mm-hmm. it becomes like that like why why is I think it's come to the point where certain cultures and traditions are privileged over others right yeah yeah and like how do you then set the hierarchy or like why is there even a hierarchy yeah so I mean uh, let's say in terms of G's dad like because I understand he's he's very active in the Pranakan community uh, on a quite a public level as well mm. and uh, at least the way I've got to know him over the years I would say he's like this heritage enthusiast like so do you see there's like this like, yeah I mean yeah he's he's always on like you there are like viral videos, videos of him viral yeah NHB video of him with the GT lines yeah yeah them them like uh, reciting pantun uh, uh, pantun this pantun that and then uh, yeah and how how uh do you see for yourself like you know him negotiating? Mm. Let's say yeah, you guys mentioned just now this whole like let's say the commercialization or like the officialization of this Pranakan identity as well as you know then him uh wanting to keep these traditions and mm. you know in spite of the faith like that you know like let's say it's the Samayang Abu like the ancestral worship things. Mm. Yeah. How does he navigate all of that? Yeah. I mean I mean we I mean uh, the best of obviously would be a talk to him. But I guess as his as his child, how do you how do you uh rationalize this? Mm. Well that's a really, really tough question. Mm. I I mean okay, let's say yeah. simplify a bit. Like mm. for instance, let's say he sees something like Little Nyonya or mm. Chinese Xiao Nyang Re on Channel 8. How does he feel? About he was freaking it? annoyed. <laughs> because, I mean, first and foremost, like, the Xiao Nyang Re was aired on Channel 8, right? Which is a Mandarin speaking channel. I was then, just gonna say, is it Chinese? I guess your, maybe your family also responded yeah. in a similar way. My mom didn't even know it existed. Like, I mean, she can't, she doesn't even <laughs> watch Channel 8. Yeah. Uh, because my dad, uh, even though he, he understands Mandarin, you know, um, we did watch it together as a family uh, for for lols <laughs> to watch like you know these characters wearing sangkabaya and this like rumah uh, like these traditional Pranakan houses by speaking in Mandarin and like there was a scene where Qi Yu recited a pantone to Janet Paul's character in Mandarin <laughs> And we were all my I think my my dad died last year. <laughs> he saw that episode. They didn't consult you. They did not know. They 
And that was 2004, five, I think. You know, I was yeah. still in primary school. And I think just for that reason alone, um, it was funny la, because you would not have Pranakans fluently speaking Mandarin to each other. That is unheard of, you know. Mm. I, I mean, I'm sure there must maybe there's one or two people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but and in that era, no. Maybe dialect, but. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. Because Mandarin wasn't a thing yeah. at, in that era, right? Of like, when was it set in? Like, whatever. The World War II. The World yeah. War II. Yeah, okay, no lah. Yeah, it was never Mandarin. <laughs> so, just on that note alone, my dad was like, okay, this is quite uh, strange, but, um, but why not? You know, it reaches, I guess the idea was to reach a certain audience. Okay. And one can also perhaps think further about, okay, why did the producers decide to script this uh, TV series all about the Pranakan culture in Mandarin. Like, who are they trying to reach as an audience? So that's also something interesting to think about, I guess. Like, um, on the note of like how he navigates all of these things about state uh, officialization, uh, like I said, I guess it's a double-edged sword. It's a tricky thing to balance. I think... Um, my dad does he's a very uh, outgoing and like um, uh, friendly amicable kind of character and when he's invited to you know do this these talks or sharings or like pantong recitations at events he's very happy to do it and I think he does see it as a part of sharing you know this culture that even just yesterday, he said, uh, uh, oh my god, he, my, he asked my brother or, or I, like, oh, did you read this book called, um, uh, what is it? So it? It was this book that was written by this uh, woman completely in Malay, And he told us, oh, you should read this book because this language, uh, it's a dying language, you will not hear it anymore one generation later. So I think he does have this mindset that it is a culture that has to be actively preserved. Mm. If not, it will just fade out, you know. And I guess that is one motivation for him. Um, but I also feel like he is aware of these over commercializations of things and how it does affect um, like certain practices in a negative way like he's but also this is a typical Pranakan chauvinistic thing like if you go out to like Pranakan restaurant like you Pranakan for it's like every time it's terrible like, yeah, yeah. it's like oh because they think they are now like Pranakan culture is so big all these Pranakan restaurants open and, and it's not Pranakan food <laughs> but perhaps like you know maybe he's also it's very complex like there's a nostalgia for the home cooked like traditional food and because of you know, something that is perhaps, as I said earlier, it's good that, you know, more of a Singaporean community or the population knows about the Pranakan culture, its food, its practices. That's why these restaurants, you know, more and more are popping up. That's a good thing in a way. But then, what do these Pranakans uh, do when they eat at these restaurants? You're like, <laughs> oh, it's terrible. My mother cooked better than yes. no, So, it's always this... Uh, yeah. Which I think is the, like, the reason I asked uh, G to do this episode with us is because I think we've reached that point that, which is kind of like the crux of what I think was very interesting, which is that, um, you see, like, this idea of the purity, like, the authenticity of the Pranakan culture, you know, what is the real food, what is the real language, what is this, what is real that, you know, what is the, the true thing. Mm. And then, yet, you know, and, and when we think about tradition or slash heritage in a certain way, like, you know, it kind of, it's kind of like fixed in our minds, you know, there's a certain nostalgia, whether it's like a state-sanctioned or a commercial one or even a very personal one. Mm. 
there is a certain kind of image, you know, that of how things should be. Yeah. This list of things of how it should be, and then, uh, yet there's this aspect of the Pranakan community that we know that all many people are very aware of, but I don't think no every people talk about it very publicly or don't really see it as like, eh, this is actually very interesting. Like, for instance, I you know you shared with me just a couple of days ago the picture of the Pranakan mask. Mm-hmm. Actually, I've seen like your dad showed me a couple before. And there's an there's, there's like an ongoing kind of rojak kind of hybridization, yeah. which you know, like Pranakan culture in itself is really celebrated and in a way marketed as a this hybrid culture. Mm. Yet you know it's still going undergoing hybridization and everything. Yeah, yeah and. Uh, yeah, this is the part I find is very unique. Lah. And actually, yeah, you if you think about it, you know, all cultures actually work in that way. Lah, you know. yeah. Yeah. Once you try to grasp it, then it kind of slips through your fingers, then it continues doing something. Yeah. 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 You can't you can't like immortalize it because mm. it's constantly evolving. Actually I think all hybrid cultures have the problem of like identifying themselves. Because if you break down certain things, right, like, in terms of, if you break it down in terms of, like, dress, for example, then you say, okay, this is influenced by that. But then, like, how do you differentiate yourself from that culture? So, like, for example, the kabaya, right, it's now become a pranakan. But then how do you, so that was what differentiated them from, like, the bajukurong. And then they have to keep it like that, you know, they have to keep that silhouette, keep the way they wear the crongs, the croissant and all. And then, and, you know, it's, I think it's very hard to identify like very specific items or practices that are exclusive to that hybrid culture, which is why I think like this identity, like all of them always face identity problems. Mm. Yeah. So like, you know, you say you speak... Malay but then now you you say you have to speak Baba Malay mm. and you have to say that you have to highlight that it's different from Malay but at what point did it become different and at what point will it go back to being purely Malay you know mm. yeah I mean and on top of that like I think last time we talked like you, you also mentioned that uh uh you know, G's case, like his dad's case, Alvin G himself, like mm. the to be very aware and still practicing uh, mm. these traditions on a daily basis is actually increasingly rare uh, among yeah. people in the Pranakan community, especially the youth. Yeah. Yes. So like I would say even my parents' generation, like they don't really practice it anymore. The only thing that would differentiate them is the way they talk, the them speaking Malay. In terms of food also, it's not like we constantly eat Pranakan food at home. So then like, what makes you Pranakan, you know? Or like, what makes me Pranakan? As mm. in, I wouldn't be able to like, go up to like, a very traditional Pranakan and say, hey, you know, I got Pranakan blood, but then I cannot speak Malay. <laughs> I cannot speak Malay. And then I, I don't really use the mm. kabaya. So like, Mm-hmm. Am I still Pranakan, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then I wouldn't fully identify with someone who comes from a very traditional Chinese family either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and I think the problem again with like trying to find something that is unique to the culture, like you make it come to a standstill, right? And then if I veer away from this thing, then am I truly of that culture? Mm. Like, so if the kabaya is unique to being Pranakan, then if I don't use the kabaya, am I still Pranakan? Mm. Like, yeah, like, how do you define it, you know? Yeah. Especially, and this is especially the case for hybrid cultures, lah. Because, mm. like, the others would be, like, you know, skin colour, race, mm. language. Yeah. And I mean, in terms, at least in the... CMIO framework yeah, yeah. if you don't fit into any 
I guess old la, you feel the, the 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 other la. you would <laughs> yeah but yeah but I wouldn't be under old either yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. so yeah you see it's like the you know it's like a very neither here nor there situation la, right yeah and uh, I guess I think right, to kind of like close off a bit mm. uh, guess one question I have for G is like. For yourself, do you see yourself like uh, continuing these traditions in the future? Mm. With regard to Samayang Abu, I think uh, it's a definite, you know, I've been giving it much more thought in the past few years. And, um, you know, becoming more conscious as a result of becoming more conscious about my dad's practices and how I arrived into Catholicism, etc, etc. And for me, it's a Definitely yes, la. I will continue to uh, follow this practice. Um, and that's something that somehow it... I guess, you know, one could ask, you know, why, why, do, why do I feel this uh, need, right? And I guess a simple answer would be that it keeps me rooted, I guess, in a certain... Um, context, you know, and a certain lineage that I um, identify with and who I continue to want to respect. And with food, you know, food traditions, um, I'm slowly trying to also pick up, you know, how to make this, make that, and like in Berlin, I also started making my own salabachan there. <laughs> uh, and uh, to the annoyance of my downstairs neighbors. Oh, And I guess with language, it's there's not really much sad to say to be done about in a way because I I think I do command a certain degree or like level of being able to understand uh, Baba Malay uh, being you, able to speak you, because you also studied Malay so third language mm-hmm. once right yes yeah, to all levels in fact. but that was like standard Malay but that was Bahasa Malay exactly yeah. and then I once even brought my homework back to my father to help me <laughs> uh, and then I really failed <laughs> really you know, I think it was <laughs> what do you mean lao? Lao La- eh, is actually food, right? Also in Berlin, yeah. right? But then I think I was writing like oh gua, mm. you know, translations like So, um, language because language needs a community to survive, yeah. and I feel like you know, currently in my present situation, living in Berlin, I can't even keep up often with my Mandarin, let alone my Cantonese, let alone my Baba Melayu, you know, so that's tough. And um, I will never reach that same standard as my dad, who's able to write and recite pantones and sing Dong Tang Sai, which is like an improvised, you know, singing art form. So right? it's like a... It's like poetry slam. A, a, a rap. Like, like a rap. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't make that comparison. <laughs> it's like improvised poetry. <laughs> um, but if there is Dondasaya rap, I would love to see that. <laughs> Let me know. So maybe in these, maybe I just give these three, you know, dimensions of culture as, as an example. Mm. And they all vary like, according to different circumstances. And, and for you, it's I, from what I'm hearing, it's quite a personal thing. Like. Yeah. And I guess just now before we, we, we started the podcast, we were talking about, like, yeah, I mean, the even for myself also, like my own family roots and heritage, tradition, whatever you want to call it, mm. you know, the languages, the, you know, the... The knowing the the knowledge of where so called uh, your ancestors came from, yeah, these things, uh, if not for conscious effort, they would like slowly fade off, la, Right, and yes. um, 
in a way, that is the point of uh, of becoming a, a citizen of a nation, right? Like you, you kind of slowly, generation by generation, you discard. Uh, the or you you severe the ties with the the ancestral homeland. I guess like an example I can think of is like in America, like a lot of the migrants there, mm. you know, when you know, who are from Europe, and you know, but currently if you are like of European descent, you just identify as white, right? Mm. Maybe you <laughs> can think of oh, I have a Scottish or Irish, but it's not like important yeah. in like. Let's say in everyday everyday life, but yeah. So I guess, yeah. Let's see, you know, five generations down, what happens? You know, what what what's going what's going to happen here? Yeah. You know, actually, we have like a secret guest in the room who is like a <laughs> a he, He's like the Pranakan who missed the deadline. <laughs> and, uh, you have to explain it. <laughs> I just got it. Yeah, because yeah, his, his mom is like uh, you know Minangkabau, and then. Uh, with like Indonesian and then uh, his dad's like Hainanese Chinese but yeah but somehow you know he, he didn't qualify for the the Pranakan tryouts like. <laughs> <laughs> in five generations please tell your descendants from Okay, so I think this is a nice uh, closure to the, the episode. Yeah, and uh, yeah, thank, thank you so you. much for sharing. Thank you, thank you both of you uh, and Tristan. <laughs> yeah, and uh, stay tuned for upcoming episodes. And yeah, we actually have something like an actual physical event coming up soon. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned. See you. Thank you. Bye.